Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Welcome, listeners. I am beyond excited to introduce this week's guest, Trevor Stratton, who is a two-spirit citizen of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations near Toronto, Canada, with mixed English and Ojibwe heritage. Diagnosed with HIV in 1990, he is now the coordinator for the International Indigenous Working Group on HIV and AIDS for its host organization, the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network. Trevor is the president of the board of Two-Spirited People of the First Nations in Toronto. He is also the interim CEO of the International Indigenous HIV and AIDS Community. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, thank you for inviting me on. I have seen you talk and I've heard you and I've read your work. So this is, I'm thrilled that we're finally meeting one-on-one. And I would like to know how, if, if the listener uh, bumped into you in an elevator, let's say pre-COVID, so everyone's not like wearing masks. <laughs> so, and asked you, Trevor, describe what you do. How do you describe it? I would say that uh, I'm an international HIV activist for the indigenous population and that what we are really trying to do is uh, to create a unified voice so that international entities at the UN or NGOs that work internationally or academics like yourself so that when they ask what is the deal with indigenous peoples in HIV that we have an answer that a lot of people agree with. A lot of Indigenous people mm-hmm. have discussed this. They've come to some kind of general agreement. And this is what we're about. We are underrepresented in the news, in the statistics, and yet we are overrepresented. We mm-hmm. know that. We are overrepresented in the key populations that might be at higher risk for HIV. And we believe we're also overrepresented in, in the numbers of people living with HIV. Mm-hmm. I think that's so powerful and the work you do is so important in, in, in a global sphere. I'm gonna show up to your beautiful place right now with a mask on and bring my time machine. And you're also gonna have a mask and we can physically distance in the time machine. And I'm gonna say, Trevor, bring me back to the time and place where you thought I need to start doing this work that I think addresses stigma, but is, is much more beyond stigma as well. But where would, where would you take me in this time machine? And the time machine is allowed to have multiple stopovers, but I'm just wondering where we would go. <laughs> well, my, my time machine goes back to the time before antiretroviral treatment. So when I was diagnosed in 1990, I don't know even how, how long before that I was living with HIV. So that's 30 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1997, I started to get weaker. I had even moved to the United States where I had no health insurance. 
So I had to move back to Canada and I started to get weaker on getting AIDS related illnesses mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, stuff in my gums and my mouth and my scratchy skin and itchy skin. And I was afraid to take the medications because I didn't, they were so new. I saw people taking huge doses of AZT in the early years and mm -hmm. actually dying from the supposed cure or treatment. Mm. And so, you know, there were activists saying AZT equals death. And so a lot of us were terrified of the um, new medications. What's this mm. going to be like? I thought of it as climbing a ladder, but the ladder's not leaning against anything. It's just, oh. you have to balance it as you climb higher and higher. That's how it yeah. felt. Because I eventually, I almost died. And it was my, my wife at the time, I was married, and my son who convinced me that, you know, Trevor, you're in denial. You need to start getting on the antiretroviral medications. They will save your life. And eventually I did. But, you know, it was, I, I was reluctant to reach out. And it was because of the stigma. Mm -hmm. It was because of my own internalized stigma. I didn't want people to know I was HIV positive, but it was also my own stigma that I carried around HIV, those people with HIV. Suddenly I became HIV positive, mm -hmm. so it became internalized. And I think a lot of people have to go through that. And that's part of the, the struggle around finding out your status. I mean, if you weren't born with it, then you acquired it at some point in your, in your life moving around. And uh, yeah, I, it was definitely that. And a fear of being discriminated against mm -hmm. and having to identify and, and basically disclose to everybody to get help, to reach out. You need to see what's wrong with you. Well, mm -hmm. I have AIDS. And that was very tough for me. But it was the, and this is a bit of a storyline here. A friend of mine who is now retired, who was a mentor of mine for the indigenous HIV movement, his name was Art Sokol. And he was one of the first responders. People live, uh, he wasn't living with HIV back then. He was one of the people that just cared enough to be part of the response. So Two-Spirited People of the First Nations was uh, incorporated back in 1990. And at the time, it was the very first AIDS service organization in Canada that, uh, wow. that was in that was indigenous. Mm -hmm. right? So that, I've that, been to this space and it's so beautiful. Yeah, and, and they're still around to this day. But uh, he was at that time working with the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network and said, listen, we're going to be in Toronto. And this is 1999 when I started to get better, but I was stuck in this place of depression and, and self-stigmatizing. And I just didn't see a future for myself. And I joined in at their annual general meeting there was this indigenous woman who, who I've heard was, was uh, trying to find me. She was Haida from the West Coast. And she said, she finally tracked me down. She said, you're Trevor. This is your territory here. This is the territory of your community, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. I said, yeah. She said, well, here's some medicine and handed me some tobacco mm. with some little pieces of BC jade in it as well. Wow. And she said, I want you to take this medicine back to an elder in your community and thank them for allowing us to have this meeting on your traditional territory. So she was giving me the gift of, of knowledge of my own culture, but she was also, it was almost like a quest. I was like, wow, I've been told to go share this medicine with my community from this meeting. But at the same time, at that meeting, they had a two-day healing circle for people living with HIV. And I just felt spiritually and emotionally lifted from this stuck this ditch that I was stuck in, spinning my tires, and and it got me back, got me back on track, and addressed the, the spiritual and the emotional sickness that I was ha experiencing. I started to realize that that's what it was, and 
it helped me so much because I was physically getting better, but that helped me to be more whole. And I just, after that point, I realized, wow, there's a whole, the psychic energy of knowing that there's a whole bunch of indigenous people that are doing something about this and they care and they're together and there's a solidarity. And that meant so much to me. Like I wanted to be a part of that and I wanted mm. to contribute to it. And that was the beginning. Wow. So your origin story, as they would say in the superhero movies, <laughs> is, is really personal and it's really been decades. I first started doing volunteer work at HIV in 94. So I remember wow. at the Wellesley Hospital on the AIDS floor. And I remember those days where all the people in the hospital who were admitted, who were living with HIV, were kept in one floor and their names were in red to signify yeah. they were living with HIV. And as volunteers, we were sometimes the only visitors people had because of stigma. And that actually started, yeah. it was before there was good meds. So people yeah. were often, when they came to be in the hospital, sometimes they would pass away in the hospital and we would be the people visiting them to the end. And we were just volunteers. And for me, it's never left me that feeling that stigma is really like a barrier to people getting the love and care that you know they, they need. And, and that's what you yeah. talk about, spiritual and emotional wellness, especially when, when somebody is, is very ill, like that, that's so powerful. Yeah, and a lot of healthcare workers and, and academics often overlook the, that piece, the quality of life. Yes, there's the biomedical, but without quality of life, are you going to go get tested? If you, you know, are, you going to, are you going to go on treatment? Are you going to adhere to treatment? I mean, I was living in poverty. In 1994, I was still basically living in, I was part of the working poor. And so I didn't have the greatest clothes. I had long hair. I like to, you know, express myself as like my long hair Indianness. And uh, I remember having kidney stones and going into Wesley Hospital and they didn't trust me. They thought I was looking for drugs oh. because I was in such pain. I was howling and they made me sit in that waiting room and give pee samples. And I, I ended up leaving after five hours because I wasn't getting five treatment. hours. I was, I was still five in hours. pain. Oh my God. But, but, I did tell them I was HIV positive, but I'm not sure that that was the stigma. Was it, was it around my, my poverty? Was it my, maybe my street-involved look that I was drug-seeking drug behavior? And it's interesting just by looking at someone how you can be judged and people can make certain, you know, they can draw certain conclusions from these indicators that they're looking for that are in some cases racial or they're class-based, you know, or just othering you know, that, that whole thing around othering. You're, you're not like us. You're the other. Therefore, we need to treat you differently. I think that's what stigma and discrimination really are. Mm -hmm. and as you said, it's so intersectional. Is it as yeah. because you're living with HIV or indigenous or because of how you present? It's, yeah. you know, and, and the biases people, I mean, openly discriminate, discriminate against um, people that they assume are using drugs but that's also race uh, racism is embedded within who is assumed you know yeah. to be in pain too this is so like wow yeah. and so cares if you're doing drugs anyway i mean i'm still a human being i'm in pain i need help please help me <laughs> absolutely i i'm yeah. we're going to be having some guests upcoming talk about drug use stigma as well because oh, i good. think the way that people are are valued or devalued is directly related to the way we judge people's, the ways that people are, are surviving. We're a drug-using society. I mean, 
look at the pharmaceutical industry. Well, how, who, who gets judged when they have a back injury and someone uh, prescribes opioids? Mm -hmm. They only get judged once they get, if they get addicted to it, right? And then it's like, oh no, you shouldn't be, <laughs> I guess. It's, it's interesting, there's different, depending on where you're coming from, where your limit is. One glass of wine with dinner? No, no, I'm totally abstinent. That's evil, that's bad. Or yeah. a case of beer. Yeah. In an like, There's so five, many different levels. What viewpoint are you judging from? Yeah. Yeah. I was part of this workshop on opioid issues in Lexington, Kentucky in December. And it was wow. so interesting to hear people talk about the lived experiences, how often many people were prescribed medication and then became addicted to it and then nobody was there to help them deal with that so then they had to go and and do do it on their own figure out how to how to maintain their their bodily functions and and be right. so stigmatized with something that you know whether or not it was prescribed or not but but even yeah. you know, there's there seems to be this huge quick judgment for a long time around around that and and whether or not it's even you know, what you said is like, you were literally there for something else. <laughs> it was like, yeah. And um, prohibition is, you know, an experiment. It's not that old drug yeah. prohibition, you know, so right. it's failing. I think the experiment is failing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, you kind of alluded and given a lot of insight into the first stigma question, which is why it matters. You talk about it mattering because people aren't getting the care that they want and need they're being refused care like like how you were waiting for five hours mm. and also being afraid to get care you you are rightfully expecting discrimination you also mentioned it in relationship to hiv perhaps being a barrier to testing yeah taking treatment into adherence is there anything else you want the listeners to know about why they should care about stigma well I think stigma is the biggest barrier to addressing the HIV pandemic around the world. That's, I mean, we have, we have all the tools mm -hmm. to, to rid the entire world of HIV. We could get rid of it. It's not like COVID. We have the tools and solutions now. We know what works and what doesn't. It's the stigma and the discrimination criminalizing uh, certain people. Mm -hmm. Like the, the idea of uh, HIV non-disclosure being a crime, that's criminalizing people with HIV. Sex work, criminalized. In many countries, you know, men who have sex with men, criminalized. Transgender people, mm -hmm. uh, prisoners are already criminalized. These are, uh, you know, people who use drugs, criminalized. So people that, that could really use a little help or some guidance on how to be safer and how to avoid HIV in the first place, they're, if they're criminalized, they're not going to go for services. If they see other people being discriminated because of HIV status, they're going to say, well, why would I do that? Why would I even get tested? You know, there's, there was an expression going around between uh, people that thought they might be at risk and, you know, take the test and face arrest. So if you don't know, you're not, you, even if you pass it, you, you can't get arrested. But as soon as, they, as soon as you're HIV positive, you know what I mean? That's a deterrent. Mm -hmm. We had uh, Dr. Alex McClelland on an earlier podcast, and we talked a lot about his research and lived experience around criminalization. And mm -hmm. just if the listeners want to learn more about, about this, you know, you can also check that podcast out as well as Trevor's work. But most people, like, 
the vast majority of people who are experiencing any kind of criminalization have ne never even transmitted the virus <laughs> at all. And so there's exactly. people actually being charged. And I know Alex's PhD work was talking about all these people who had, who had been charged with HIV non-disclosure and there had been no, no cases of transmission. Even if there was, it doesn't justify any criminalization. But the fact that it's, it's so clearly uh, about something else, about controlling people's bodies and not trusting people and stigmatizing people. And yeah, and I'm sure Dr. McClellan also talked about, you know, how the, the law isn't ca hasn't caught up with the science. Mm -hmm. And it's directly because of stigma. Mm -hmm. It's criminalization of, being, of, the, of an HIV positive status, really. And that's why the U equals U um, campaign is so very important for people to know that they don't have to be, they don't have to transmit HIV. They don't, they can get the viral load in the blood down so low that it's impossible to transmit HIV sexually. That's a big deal. And a lot of doctors and researchers have known that for decades. I remember in, oh geez, what year was the, would that have been? About 1997, when I, or 1998, when I started to get sick. I remember sitting with my wife with the HIV specialist and they said, wow, your viral load is up over 300,000. I'm so surprised that uh, your wife didn't get HIV. And either she didn't believe me or she forgot that, I, that we told her we use a condom every time. That's why she doesn't have HIV. But you know, if you read that backwards, okay, so we're surprised she didn't get HIV because your viral load was so high. Doesn't that mean that if it were lower, that there would be lesser of a chance uh -huh. of her getting HIV? No one told us that. Why not? Yes. I, and I want to get you maybe... Is it stigma? Is it discrimination? I don't know. I, I'm not a mind reader, but there's something going on there. There's some gatekeeping that happened. Absolutely. I want, um, I know some of the listeners might not know what U equals U is. Maybe you could explain that for some of the listeners. Sure. It's, uh, it, people have known for a long time, but basically it's become a, a real, um, it's, a, it's a message for people uh, who are living with HIV, who take the medications every day under the care of their doctor. Uh, the, the results of the medications are so good that they beat down HIV and stop the replication of HIV to the point where the standard test to find antibodies for HIV in the body cannot detect HIV. It's under 50 parts per million. So that when it's that low, it's not possible, according to research, it is not possible to pass HIV to another human being sexually. And that, that's huge. So it stands for, U equals U stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. And mm -hmm. for, for those uh, language uh, police out there, un untransmissible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, is it, sometimes I see untransmittable and untransmissible, and I'm like, yeah. yeah I just Some people equally. care that much, you know, no, no, don't use that <laughs> messaging. Come on now, it's working. Let's use it. <laughs> so it really is a very powerful scientific evidence that taking HIV medications can suppress a virus and there's no possibility of transmission, which makes it even more ludicrous that we're criminalizing non-disclosure, you know? Yeah, like, it's it, amazing that in this day and age with the scientific knowledge we have that it's still happening and people are still being criminalized for spitting on a police officer. <sighs> of, co of course, you know, we don't want people spitting on people. Of course not, that's not a nice thing. Maybe there should be a law against spitting in someone on someone, but should they be criminalized and jailed for attempted murder? Hell no. Uh, that's just ridiculous. 
<laughs> totally. <laughs> I wanted you to, to give an example so the listeners can get a sense of, you know, you work with indigenous communities in Canada and all around the world of people living with HIV. What might be an example of an, a daily experience of stigma? And I know that Indigenous people experience profound racism, and and that's in addition to HIV stigma. So, is there any any examples that you'd like to share? Obviously, anonymized, you know, but of yeah. of you know, in twenty twenty, what is, are people might be like? Oh, stigma still happening. Maybe you want to give an example. Mm-hmm. Well, I I remember you know, travel's been curtailed, but last year, you know, on, I'm not going to name which province and, and which it's a prairie province in a smaller city is getting in the cab. And somehow the con the, the cab driver bought up that indigenous people are getting a lot of HIV. Chances are when you see an indigenous person, they probably have HIV. So I don't, I try not to pick up indigenous people because I, I look, I look very white. I have light skin and my eyes are not brown. So I hear a lot of the racism that is directed towards indigenous people or wow. maybe mostly behind their back, but sometimes directly. So, you know, uh, I remember standing in a, in a bar, I was talking to my indigenous friend who's got long hair, he's dark, beautiful. And he walked away and somebody came up and uh, a white guy and just said, geez, that, is that, that Indian guy's harassing you, eh? It's, just, it's almost like uh, Toronto isn't white anymore. You know, wow. like where, where are all the white people? Like just, um, and calling, saying, I don't even want to use the terms that he used to describe my friend. But I almost got in a fist fight with this guy because I was so deeply offended by the, the depth mm-hmm. of, of the racism and the, and the stigma. Very overt racism. Yeah. And, and because I'm not indigenous looking, I don't get the, unless I show my card at a dentist, I feel, you know, then they're like, oh, yeah, you're on welfare. You should talk to your worker. Well, actually, I'm not on welfare. I have a job and I don't have a worker. And I don't know what you're talking about, but here, this is my insurance, right? It's my treatment. So there's just stereotypes about you before you even open your mouth. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's the thing. Indigenous people don't pay taxes. Indigenous people, uh, you know, should get a mortgage. But wait a minute, we gave up all of our, all of our livelihood, all of our territory for a tiny postage stamp. And we agreed that if you feed us, because we can't feed ourselves anymore if we give up this territory and, and you provide medical care, that we agree to give up all this territory. In some cases, it was a treaty. In other cases, we, they were just forced there without a treaty. Mm-hmm. And that's the unceded lands that you hear about. So, you know, there's that stigma too and, and racism and, and judgment around um, why, what, is, what are the barriers to uh, Canada assimilating you people? Like, how can we assimilate you better? As if that's the issue. Wow. You know, Which is and, actually and the where problem. Do you start, where do you, yeah. How do you start, get in, jump into that conversation? Yeah, I have to back up so far that I'm an amoeba. I'm a, I'm a fetus. I'm a, I have to forget everything I learned about being indigenous, you know? So what you're saying is there is so much racism that indigenous people already experience every single day, you know, in a bar, on the street, in the healthcare system. I can only imagine that this is amplified for um, indigenous people living with HIV who ex- probably experience even more because they're, needing to interface with the healthcare system. It goes back to what we were talking about, that intersectionality, right? So not only, you could be indigenous, uh, maybe you might be trans and you might be pregnant and you are a person who uses drugs, who just got out of prison, 
who may be the only way you can support your three children is through sex work. Mm -hmm. Look how many layers of stigma and discrimination. Then you get HIV and hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. Imagine, and, and, and maybe you have cognitive, some cognitive issues. Maybe you're born with FASD or attention deficit disorder, or spectrum disorder, or something like that. Each one of those things is another layer of burden, that's burden of stigma or burden of illness. And, you know, your immune system can only take so much and it's compromised by HIV. Imagine the health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Stigma and discrimination just complicates it. Wow. I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm lucky. I'm privileged. Through this work, it actually, through the HIV work, my income is, is higher to the point where I can buy certain comforts. I can mm -hmm. afford certain comforts. Like, for example... When I was young, my mom didn't have money to pay the dentist to do cavities, so we had to pull teeth. That's, she had 20 bucks to pull it, but she didn't have $200 for the, what, the work that needed to be done wow. because she was discriminated against because she's an indigenous woman who married a white man. In those days, she lost her status. She had no treaty rights, and neither did we as her children. So we had no treaty rights, so she had to pay for our dental work. So I had holes in my teeth. When I, if 40 years later, 45 years later, I had an income enough where I could go pay a lot of money to get an implant and get a new tooth. And I can't explain to you how I felt. Like I felt suddenly enfranchised. I am part of this country now. I'm part of the success story of Canada. And I didn't feel like that. I felt excluded, marginalized. And it's something as simple as just getting a tooth. When I smiled, they couldn't see that big gaping hole. Mm -hmm. And when someone has holes in their smile, people will discriminate or think certain things are stigmatizing. They don't have the money. What I'm, who, do, who has holes in their teeth? Like, totally. That, the element, right? I think, you know what, Trevor, you're really bringing up poverty stigma yeah. and its intersection with, with all of the other things we're talking about. But that poverty stigma is so profound. And... It's classism. Yeah, yeah, wow. Which probably all discrimination boils down to classism. Sexism, homophobia, it's all like I'm better than you, you're lower than me, I'm up here, you're down there. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a particularly Western way of thinking that doesn't really match the indigenous worldview. Of course, uh, most of us, uh, a lot of us, uh, our minds have been colonized and many of us do think that way. It was forced into us through residential school systems and mm -hmm. efforts at assimilation, but it's not where we came from. And what we want to get back to most people in their healing, in their community healing, in the family healing, in the individual healing, it's about getting back to that equity, that kinship, the circle where everyone's equal and, and equally important and has a, a role and a responsibility in the community. That's what we want to get back to. Absolutely. I'm, I'm working on a, a book right now, like challenging the idea that people are hard to reach and working with examples from research. And I've been working for the last six years with Dr. Candace Liss in the Northwest Territories with her. Mm -hmm. She started an organization called Foxy. And when we were having this conversation for the book, because it has like a conversation about the research with somebody who's co-leading the research. And I, I was reflecting on with her, how powerful it has been working with elders in this program with young adolescents and how elders are, are part of all of 
because Fox is an indigenous program, it, the part of all of the, the work with the adolescents. And she just said, Carmen, it's so strange to me that it wouldn't be that way. And she goes, because we also have so much to learn also from babies. Like babies yeah. have, have lessons to teach us at like every, every age group has these beautiful lessons if we are open to listening and there's nobody above or below it just have different lessons to teach us and i was like wow you know i never heard of researchers saying we have a lot to learn from just just from having the presence of babies just not studying just their existence and just children and just to have people's just the way that they exist in the world is a has lots to teach us no. Yeah, and you know, a lot of indigenous people will have a gathering that's work related, a conference, and there'll be babies there. Yeah, it's so nice. And some people will be like, oh, damn, that's noisy, that's interruptive. And, and other people will be like, they're listening to it like it's music. Totally. It's or soothing like, their spirit, the sound of these gurgling babies, you know, it's, it's just so beautiful. Totally. And they're crawling maybe around yeah. and bring us some. And they're learning fun. too and teaching at the same time. <laughs> And, you know, that's part of the worldview and part of the misunderstanding, I think, of uh, uh, people coming from the West to uh, North America is uh, the, often the elders would be the ones raising the children. And they were learning from each other because the elders be learning about what's new, what's this new trendy stuff these kids are into. <laughs> and because the middle people, the, the middle-aged people, they're the workers. They're busy. They're yeah. busy gathering, hunting, learning bringing things back, enriching the community because they're young and strong. And then the, the elders have the, uh, that knowledge, life knowledge, pass it to the, the youth, and the youth are reciprocating, bringing that new knowledge, this, this, this new stuff, these new eyes to the elders. So the, you know, the whole community ends up being more whole and, and, and more uh, interconnected, I think, through that whole process. And, and the Western people thought, looked at it as neglect. Mm-hmm. Look at those moms and dads ignoring their children. We don't do that. We need to take those kids away. That's often part of the deal was that where are the parents? They're gone. And, and often they're, they're busy. Yeah. They're doing the work of the community and the, the elders are taking care of them. That's the, that's the way we roll. Yeah. You know? <laughs> There's so much to learn um, yeah. from, from this. So my last stigma question before we get to the wild cards is so there's a listener who's walking their dog or sitting on the bus or sometimes they listen to podcasts when i'm washing the dishes Mm. how can they be part of the solution that indigenous people living with hiv experience multiple forms of stigma as you mentioned associated with many things how can the listener be part of creating a better world well in canada we have the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I will link and those to this podcast too. And good, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember with some organizations, the Canadian government, after they came up with that, after recommendations come out, they're telling Indigenous uh, organizations, we want you to focus on the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We want you to shift your work a little bit. And a lot of the community was said, pushed back a little bit and said, wait a minute, we've been telling you this, that you need to do this for the last 20, 30 years. And now you have recommendations and you're saying that we need to do this. The recommendations, most of them are not for indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the rest of the people in Canada, you know, like acknowledging the territory, 
of, of the indigenous peoples of the land. Mm-hmm. We already do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like this, that's not a recommendation for us. So I, I think that getting to know the recommendations is, is, is one step. But so the listeners can, I'll have a link to the recommendations. So listeners can download that, read it and learn about some of the, and it's across many different aspects of life and education. And, and you're also suggesting that listeners learn about what territory they're on and acknowledge mm-hmm. that territory. That's a huge piece. I mean, when I went to school, I didn't learn much about the first peoples of, of this land. I learned about the pioneers, hmm. how their interaction with the indigenous people. And, you know, from that perspective, it was the colonizer's perspective. We didn't learn anything about how it was to be an indigenous person while all this was happening. While two thirds of the population, two thirds of your family, your community died of diseases, that new diseases that we never had before. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as many human beings as there are stars in the sky suddenly moving across the territory and settling. That must have been terrifying, terrifying for people. So listeners could also try to learn about the history from a indigenous people's perspectives rather than remembering what they were taught, which is very, very, very biased to the perspective of the colonizers. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I want to say about that is, um, Acknowledging the territory, that's, that is actually one of the recommendations uh, from the TRC. Um, and it's not very meaningful if it's just read out. We want to acknowledge this is the territory, the Mississaugas of the Credit people, who are Ojibwe's, and also the Haudenosaunee, which is the Six Nations. You know, that's, yes, it is something. But if it's not from the heart, it's not what, that's not really what the recommendation is saying. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it, and even if it is heartfelt and uh, when a person's reading it, it's meaningful and it's well-written, what does it mean to you individually, you human being who's saying these words right now? Mm. Because there's a whole bunch of other human beings in the room who are, maybe it has meaning to them, but what does it mean to you perhaps as a settler with Irish German blood, mm-hmm. what do you know about your ancestry and how your people, your ancestors came to this land? Mm-hmm. And how does it mean to your family? What does it mean to you standing on this land right now? You know, that is so meaningful. When I hear that, it doesn't matter what they say. If they're sharing from their heart, the mm-hmm. truth from their heart, that is reconciliation. That's connecting on a human, spiritual, emotional, a real, it it's a, makes a real difference in real people's lives. That is meaningful. It almost makes me cry. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think there's, at least in academia and conferences, there's often sort of uh, just a reading of, I acknowledge this is the land, but to situate yourself and um, where you come from in that is so powerful. So I want to, I'm aware of the time and everything you've shared with us, but I want the listeners to learn a little bit more about you through wildcard questions. So, Uh Uh-oh, scary. (laughs) The first wildcard question is, are you watching anything on Netflix right now? Hmm, I'm re-watching and re-watching Netflix. Oh, (laughs) been there. Episodes, yeah. Any any good... uh, good things you're really enjoying right now i like this cartoon called disenchantment 
I've never seen that. It's by the same artist, Matt Groening, I think, Greening, that does uh, The Simpsons. So the animation is simpler, but it's kind of like uh, an animated, extremely funny Game of Thrones. Okay. And it's based on this young girl who's the princess and she has a demon friend and she has, what's the other friend? An elf friend. And they just bumble their way through the kingdom and, uh, and, and it's uh, funny about, uh, they make fun of her privilege and, but she's a real grassroots, uh, you know, got, got no manners kind of uh, girl, but she's very common sense and she doesn't like injustice. So it's, uh, it's just so lighthearted. It makes me forget about the seriousness of my, of my work. That's totally my style. I yeah. like fun, <laughs> lighthearted. Um, so I think I'm going to try to watch that because we finished Shit's Creek. We finished the Umbrella Academy. We finished, you know, finished a lot of things. Um, yeah. It's only two seasons, but they, they threaten, they're threatening they're going to make some more. So I'm looking That's forward so great. to That's great. I'm going to watch that. I love <laughs> yeah. cartoons. I, I love it. Um, yeah. So my second wildcard question is, you can go for... Imagine there's no COVID. <laughs> Hard to do, yeah. but imagine. Yeah. Um, you can go anywhere in the world with anybody you want at any time. Like they can be living or not living right now. Who would you take and where would you go? Mm, interesting. I would, uh, I would partner up with RuPaul. I love RuPaul. And I would go to India. Oh. And and visit transgender, traditional transgender communities mm -hmm. and get involved in their celebrations in their communities. And I know some of them, some of them were, have been disowned by their families, for example, mm -hmm. but I've just met a few and I'm so intrigued. India, even without visiting trans people, India's top on my list because it's such an old culture. It's so interesting. And there's so many indigenous peoples all over India. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, to go with someone as fabulous as RuPaul and, and to visit uh, traditional transgender people, that would be mind-blowing. That would be, I actually- That would you, be cool. You made me think of a future guest, Kalki. <laughs> I don't know if you know Kalki. I did my, my doctoral research in India. I spent a couple of years in India and she's a trans activist and has done so much oh. activism and also is a movie star. And so if you ever go, I can connect you with Kalki, but also I'm thinking Kalki, come on the podcast, be a guest. <laughs> <laughs> but she's really been a leader and is, yeah, is also is in a movie as one of the wow. first movie stars who's trans. And um, I would love for you to send oh, me yeah. some selfies or something when you do that <laughs> dinner. <laughs> yeah, if I go, uh, hook me up, man. I'd like as many friends as possible, yeah. Kalki <laughs> is a great friend to me. So my last question is, is there any wisdom or advice just for life that you'd like to share with the listener? Wisdom for life? Well, just I'm any advice that's helped you out along the way or anything? I should be getting little pieces of advice by now. I'm 55, so you know, I, surely I've learned something along the way. <laughs> <laughs> you have shared so much wisdom. I'm sure this one piece. I would say this. Allow yourself light. Allow light in your life. Mm. And I don't mean just happy things. I mean sunlight. Get outside. Yeah. Enjoy all of creation. Everything that's here. You know, on, we're only on earth for such a little time. 
and to, to just surround ourselves in man-made objects, we are limiting ourselves from all of that, all of the, the rest of the universe. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we think of, and really what I'm talking about is eternity, to acknowledge that before we were born, there was all of eternity. Mm-hmm. And then after we die, there's all of this eternity. Mm-hmm. And then we're just this tiny little, literally a flash in the pan. Bang, it's there and it's gone. Yeah. What was, I don't know what it was. So enjoy it. Try to enjoy it while you're here. That's my struggle. Because, you know, I'm dealing with, as most people do, crap, the luggage that I'm carrying from my childhood. And it's in the way. Mm-hmm. It's inconvenient. I need to drop that and so that's a lot of my own personal work is to and i encourage others to do this allow yourself outside of the confines of the structures that you built around to protect yourself get out there in the sunshine take some chances hmm. i that's, love that advice that's about it trevor do you ride a motorcycle no but i used to tell myself that if i was uh, if i ever lived till 50 that i would get one and here i am 55 and i haven't done yet because yeah. when you said I because I ride and I love it and when you said go literally outside and feel the elements yeah. and the sun that's one of my get out of these kind of containers that we put ourselves in yeah we build them for ourselves and then we get in <laughs> get in the house or the car or whatever. Yeah. I feel like it's a very liberating experience in riding, but it's also mm. makes you in the moment because you have to pay attention in a different way than if you were riding a car because you are noticing the wind or the flies or the rain or, you know, like the, the flies the in your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to start riding, let me know because we can chat about that. I think I just might. You just planted a seed in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to um, thank you so much for taking the time to share all your wisdom with the listeners. It's been such an honor having you on this podcast. Well, I really appreciate this too, um, Carmen. The, the fact that you're doing this blog at all is a, is a gift to the world and uh, focusing on stigma. That's probably one of the most important targets you could uh, focus on for the response to HIV. So thank you. Thank you. And so listeners, you'll be able to find links to Trevor's work. And I will also put up the truth and reconciliation recommendations on the podcast link. And then anything else that Trevor gives me to share, I'll also put that. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for having me on and uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.